easily <laughs> All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Before we begin our next case, let me just uh, report that Justice Irvin has potentially uh, been exposed to COVID, so hence the mask. Uh, our next case is State versus Gaddis, and we will hear from the appellant. Please the court. My name is Jarvis Edgerton and I represent defendant appellant Richard Gaddis. This case seems like it should be simple, a DUI case, uh, but in reality it's rather complicated. Um, defendant is satisfied with the uh, dissent's take on this case and really has nothing to add to the dissent uh, is reasoned analysis here. Uh, um, Defendant does not agree with the state's, uh, uh, the majority's position, uh, and uh, um, unless this court asks questions about it, defense, defendant is going to largely stay away from the majority opinion. Uh, um, I'd like to start by talking about the one thing that's changed a little bit since the briefs were filed, uh, and that's the state's argument. Um, <coughs> in its brief, the state principally argued that defendant failed to preserve an equal protection claim under the 14th Amendment because defendant only asserted a due process violation at trial, and defendant further asserted at trial that the challenged rulings undermined its ability to present a defense. The state did not dispute, however, that the record evidence shows the requested transcript was, quote, valuable in connection with the trial for which it was sought, end of quote. Given defendant's asserted need for the transcript to impeach one or more of the state's witnesses who may change their testimony. Instead, the state argued the transcript was, quote, not entirely, quote, end of quote, necessary for preparing an effective defense under Rankin and Br the Brit analysis. In support of this claim, the state offered three plainly distinguishable cases uh, um, involving requests for transcripts from an entirely separate prior case, trials of co-defendants, and extradition proceedings. Um, each of these is ready dis readily distinguishable from the instant case where the prior trial was a mistrial involving many of the same witnesses and the same testimony and the same facts. Um, this argument is found on pages 33 and 34 of the state's brief and in footnote 10. It's defendant's position that the facts of this case clearly established that the requested transcript was necessary, necessary for preparing an effective defense. Is there a right to discovery in a misdemeanor appeal? I do not believe there is, but nonetheless, if, if the state, if the prosecution is handing over documents late in the game, I'm assuming that's why you're asking this question, because of the evidence that the state was pre uh, presenting defendant with discovery documents uh, um, very close to when the trial starts. Uh, whether or not there's a right to discovery, the state was handing out discovery this late in the process. Uh, that seems to suggest that the state itself was not ready for trial 
if it's still turning over documents and basically settling a record prior to trial. Um, and also, uh, um, as I'll note this later, but since we're on this question, the state uh, uh, conducted an arraignment hearing uh, um, in August, I believe it was in August. Um, um, and obviously the state wasn't ready for trial if it hadn't even arraigned defendant yet. Um, and then also um, the state scheduled the trial initially for the month of August while uh, um, defense counsel was on secured leave. Um, so I'm assuming your question deals with the, uh, the majority's claim that defendant was dilatory. Uh, well, not, not, not so much that, okay. uh, but more because of, of the fact that the trial court denied the motion mm -hmm. and therefore that the trial court somehow uh, erred either in the aspect of denying a right to the defendant, which is why I asked the question primarily, mm -hmm. or uh, somehow abused discretion under the circumstances since, as you say, the state was giving out some uh, discovery. So I was wondering what your foundation would be for the trial court's error. The trial court's error uh, was its denial of defendant's due process right to prepare, to, uh, prepare and have the tools for an effective defense. That is the, that is the, the one, the, the principal basis of defendant's argument here, a due process due, uh, um, violation. So that would not be a discovery right. That would be as you couch in the due process, right, is that based on some equitable uh, basis or some other basis? It's based on our Supreme Court's holding in chambers, uh, where the Supreme Court stated, or, or let me jump a little ahead here. In Chambers versus Mississippi, a case cited by defendant in his brief, our U.S. Supreme Court explained, quote, the right of an accused in a criminal trial to due process is in essence, the right to a fair opportunity to defend against the state's accusations. In chambers, the SCOTUS held that the trial court's application of a Mississippi common law voucher rule amounted to a due process violation because it effectively deprived petitioner of the right to contradict testimony that was clearly adverse to his case. The SCOTUS explained in chambers that, quote, the right of cross-examination is more than a desirable trial procedure it is implicit in the constitutional right of confrontation and helps assure that the accuracy, helps assure the accuracy of the truth-determining process. Also in chambers, the SCOTUS acknowledged that the right to confront and cross-examine is not absolute and may, in appropriate cases, bow to other legitimate interests in the criminal trial process. However, the SCOTUS explained in chambers, the denial or significant diminution of the right to confront and cross-examine calls into question the ultimate integrity of the fact-finding process and requires that this competing interest be closely examined. Allow me to briefly unpack that. What they're saying is there may be a procedure for granting continuances in state law, but when that procedure is applied in such a way that it undermines defendants' constitutional right to present a defense, then the court the trial court and the appellate court and this court is obligated to ask itself, um, did that, did that, the granting of the challenge motions undermine defendant's ability to put, uh, present a defense in such a way that it impedes upon his constitutional right to present a defense under due process of the 14th Amendment? And if it does, 
then the due process wins, not the local rule about uh, um, continuances or in chambers, not the local Mississippi rule about voucher testimony. Um, the right to, uh, the constitutional right to present a defense is preeminent. So the question before this court really boils down to, uh, did what happened at trial undermine defendant's ability to present a defense in a way that was unconstitutional? And for the reasons set forth in the dissent, I believe that absolutely it did. Uh, and if y'all like, I'd like to basically jump on the two things, a couple of things I want to make absolutely clear about this. I have a long recitation of facts showing how trial counsel uh, got this case, uh, was pointed to this case, the state put it on the August calendar 12 days later. Uh, during the month of August, defense counsel was on secured leave. It was still on the August calendar. Defense counsel comes back from secured leave. The state gives it, they call it discovery. You're right, there's no right to it, but they gave it to him when he came out of secured leave. And then they orally informed trial counsel, I believe it was three days after he came back from secured leave, that the case was set for the August calendar. Now, this notification of the case being on the August calendar happened on August 21st. Uh, respectfully, defendant argues that the fact pattern here is the state jamming this case on defense as fast as possible. So now, why would the state do that? Uh, well, you know, the state tells us. Uh, the state, when, when defendant says, um, I need this transcript, I'm worried you're going to change your, your witnesses are going to change their testimony, what does the state say in this hearing? Quote, in the case of the transcript and everything, Your Honor, the state looks at this as trial de novo. Brand new hearing. Brand new trial, brand new everything. So what the witnesses testify to in this trial is what matters, Your Honor. Did you hear the prosecutors deny that the witnesses were going to change their testimony? I didn't. Did you hear prosecutors say the problem with getting the transcript was the delay it might cause? I didn't. What the prosecutor said, plain as day, was that his witnesses were free to change their testimony, however they want, between the first trial and the retrial. And this statement made I, I, while I'm, arguing I'm, I'm, against... I'm sorry, Mr. Edgerton. How do you derive the prosecutor's statement that they're free to change their testimony from what you just read? I mean, I think he said it's a new trial, all the evidence has to come back in. Uh, is there any basis for suggesting that the prosecutor suspected that his witnesses would change their testimony? Well, he's witness? talking about the case of the transcript and everything. He's saying this in the context of, of trying to deny defendants, arguing against defendants' motion for production of the transcript, and he's saying that what happened before doesn't matter. It, it, so, quote... That's a, that's, a, that's a... I don't want to get off on tangent, but that's a different matter than saying, oh, my witnesses can change their testimony, isn't it? Well, you know, I can't remember the exact jury instruction off the top of my head, but the jury instruction for intent gets right to this. You know, intent's seldom provable by someone coming in and saying, I meant to do this. Right. You have to look at the circumstances to derive what someone is intending. The fact that the, the prosecutor does not talk about the delay uh, um, and does not talk about... Uh, um, uh, does not deny that he was flat out accused of his witnesses were going to deny, were going to change their, their testimony. That's what happened before this comment. He didn't say, no, they're not going to do it. He said they have a right to do it. And I believe in this context, it's fair to assume that the prosecutor, I believe, 
was aware. You've got to remember, this prosecutor was present for the first trial, for the mistrial, so he knows what was said then, and he's the only one, other than the two witnesses, who knows what the witnesses are going to say at the new trial. He's presumably been prepping them, interviewing them, getting ready for trial. The prosecutor is the only person here who, who could say, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen because he knows what the first testimony was and he knows what the next testimony is going to be. He didn't do that. Uh, and I, I respectfully assert that this is fairly strong evidence from the defendant's position that uh, the prosecutor knows what it's, it is consciously aware of what's going on here. Uh, and, his intent, and his goal is to deny defendant the transcript. And you see it when him saying, no, you can't have the transcript. And then later on, when defendant tries to uh, uh, bring his defense counsel in to uh, testify because he was denied the transcript, what does the prosecutor say? The prosecutor says, you should have gotten the transcript. You know, there's only one thing this prosecutor is consistent about through this, trans through this record, and that's that defendant not get any breaks or opportunities to cross-examine his witnesses with, with uh, either the transcript or defends his trial attorney. That's what he's consistent about here. No, 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 my witnesses are free to say what they want and you can't call them on it because it's trial de novo. And I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do everything possible to make sure you don't have a transcript, you can't get your lawyer in. He lost on the lawyer getting the lawyer in to testify part, but he won on the transcript part. That's the story defendant sees here. Um, to, to, I guess to illustrate it just briefly, uh, are y'all familiar with Grayson Allen, the basketball player? He was a Duke player, a strong player, good player, but he had an unfortunate tendency of tripping his opponents when they ran back on defense. When I read this transcript, I thought of Grayson Allen. I see a prosecutor here trying to trip defense counsel as he prepares his defense. Uh, lots of people call that cheating. Some people call it the Duke way, but ir irrespective, um, that's the picture I see here. I see a prosecutor manipulating the rules in an attempt to undermine defendant's ability to, to call his witnesses when they change their testimony. And there's record evidence that they did. Defendant's defense attorney on the record testified that uh, Porcello, in particular, changed his testimony. And, and let's, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, my understanding of the change in the testimony is that Mr. Porcello testified that at the time he looked in the vehicle, he couldn't really couldn't tell much of anything that would permit him to identify who the driver was. Yes. And then he then identified the defendant as the driver in the second trial. Yes, and said that he saw defendant in the car, right. which is the exact opposite, so that's, which directly that's, contradicts what he said at right. the initial so that, trial. That's, that's the, uh, the change testimony. Now, there's another eyewitness named Mr. Daniel, I believe. Yes. Uh, there's no assertion, I don't believe, and the ultimate, yes, ultimate, I, ultimate question is, am I mistaken? In no, you were not. What wound up happening is, my take on this was, at the beginning of this process, uh, Mr. Dwyer talked to the mistrial attorney, got his notes, found out that there were some questions about whether these witnesses, what these witnesses testified to. Uh, and that was what de defense attorney Dwyer knew up until he got Mr. Um, I'll call him Attorney E. I can't pronounce his last name. I, 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 the wasn't, I, wasn't, I was going to refer to him as the initial attorney myself, so yes. go ahead. Um, 
got up there and said, well, what really happened was this guy changed his testimony. But this guy, I was here in the courtroom, I heard this guy's testimony, it's substantially the same. But you're not, you're not contending now that there is a change in Mr. Daniels' testimony? No, I believe that uh, uh, prior defense attorney's testimony uh, at trial, uh, um, if not completely undermined that, it certainly diminished the impact of it. What was clear after uh, uh, prior defense attorney testified was that Porcello changed his testimony. But Mr. Daniel did not. And Mr. Daniel's testimony, he, he, it's a bit fuzzy, but he's saying that basically Mr. Daniel's did. And, and did, he, was he also, as I understand it, testified that he followed your client away from the vehicle and they went into a neighborhood and had to yes, encounter. Yes. And there was a, a, a slow motion drunken foot chase, essentially. Well, but the, the, and then lastly, there's the statement that your client made that I'm not going to repeat on the record that the state refers to in its brief that yes. I'm at, glad least, you asked it, that. at least it interprets as an admission that your client yes. was driving. I'm glad, let me get into that real quick because I, I arguably that's probably, in my opinion, that's one of the strongest points the state has uh, is an attempt to claim that this is somehow harmless error because of this statement, this confession. Well, but I mean, uh, I guess before you do that, is it a correct reading of the record to understand that in addition to Mr. Porthello's testimony, there was other evidence in the record from which, well, yes, in, you, in taken in the light most reasonable to, uh, you know, yes, favorable to the state. Yes, that is true, but we're not arguing an insufficiency question here. No, it, I understand. And yeah, I understand. This is not taking this in the light most reasonable of the state. This well, I was trying to avoid. I was trying to avoid asking the question in such a way that caused you to accept a particular characterization that you didn't want to take, that you didn't want to accept. Uh, yeah, uh, I believe that the um, um, the evidence on that, first of all, let's point out, okay, the question is, for harmless error, is the evidence so overwhelming that a jury is, not go is going to find that a uh, uh, defendant is guilty? We know the answer to that question, Your Honor. That evidence was before a jury, and they hung. So you can't point to that evidence that a jury hung, heard, saw the video, heard the whole thing, and hung. So to point to that same evidence and say, uh, in no jury is going to be persuaded by or is going to uh, reach any conclusion other than guilty seeing this evidence, that's obviously not true. Is it, is it no jury or no reasonable jury? Uh, no reason. I, that's a good question. I believe that I, no reasonable jury. Okay, thank you. But nonetheless, when you're evaluating whether it's reasonable or not, be aware that a jury heard this evidence and did not acquit. Uh, um, so to, to claim it's overwhelming or undeniable, even from, even from the, 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 the uh, <coughs> reasonable person standard, I believe is not supported by this record. Okay. Uh, and, and there's not much argument about that point from the state. Uh, if you look in the trial, people seem to agree that this was a person being drunk and talking, talking smack with the police officer. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't get into the mind of Mr. Gaddis at that moment, uh, uh, but at least one jury was not persuaded that this was overwhelming evidence that demanded uh, uh, um, uh, a guilty conviction. Uh, they, and uh, briefly on that whole point, when this court engages in harmless error analysis, let's be clear about what you're doing. You're finding the facts instead of the jury. Uh, um, you're saying that these facts, you're saying these are the facts and you're evaluating them and saying they're overwhelming and we're gonna take this out of the hands of a jury because we think that there's no chance a jury 
would hold any other conclusion. Uh, uh, I say that that approach to begin with, as Justice Earls talked a little bit about in Farmer, which was a case I was up here before, a speedy trial case, uh, that that whole not, not um, ruling on an error and just assuming it's overwhelming anyway sort of is, is really, in essence, circumventing a jury. And I think this court should be very careful about the instances it does this in. When they say that the evidence is overwhelming and, and absolute, I urge this court to be firm about that and, and not play with it on the edges. I think this is an edges case and that, that harmless, error, harmless error review uh, is inappropriate. And also, I would remind this court that the standard are, review... Are you, are you, are, when you say it's inappropriate, are you saying that this is error per se, or are you saying that... I'm saying that this is... That, that is something that we ought to be sparing in which we, when we do it. Well, I'm going to be careful about saying error per se, because also Justice Newby got me. I said one, that in one case, and he strongly disagreed with me. It turned out he was right. So I'm not going to say... <laughs> The fact that, the that prior cases appear to treat this as error per se is what I said in the brief. Right. This is what they've done. I ask you to, to do as prior cases have. Some other cases have treated it differently. I acknowledge that. But the standard of review, because it's a preserved constitutional issue, is the state bears the burden of proving the case was harmless. And I don't think the state can do that in this, trend, in this record. Uh, it cannot meet that burden. Uh, how? I mean, if you don't have the true transcripts to compare, like you did in McKeithen, you can't say, we're sure that this was, this was substantially the same and didn't matter. Uh, uh, and that's one of, I want to point that out for the, the majority's reliance on McKeithen. McKeithen is plainly distinguishable from the instant case. McKeithen, he had two attorneys. That was a capital case. He, the attorneys had the case for a long time, two of them. and. Uh, um, um, they, they were, there's a better argument that someone was dilatory in McKeithen than there is in here when one guy gets appointed late, goes on secured leave, gets jammed up with his trial transcript, uh, and uh, um, still manages a week before trial to make the motion. And, and let me talk about this for a second. The majority opinion really hammers Attorney Dwyer here. Five times they call him dilatory. Dilatory means to intentionally delay. That narrative is a complete work of fiction. You look at this trial transcript, and there is zero support for the notion that defense attorney in this case is being dilatory. The defense attorney in this case is not dilatory. He's a hero. This is the kind of defense attorney everybody wishes they had. He got up, and he asked for that transcript. Trial court summarily denied. No findings back, no nothing. Denied. Well, def most defense attorneys give up. This guy didn't. He came back a week later and said, Your Honors, there's a constitutional issue here. There's a lot more to this. I'm raising this issue again because I think you were wrong the first time around. And you know what? The trial court did the same thing. Summarily denied it. No findings of fact except for defendant had three prior attorneys, which doesn't mean anything unless you can say that those prior attorneys were fired by defendant in some sort of circumstance that suggested uh, a delay. Um, there's just no record evidence to support the idea that the defense attorney in this case was anything other than diligently trying to present a defense. Uh, you would want your defense attorney to get the transcript. And if the state says, well, we're free, our witnesses are free to change our, their testimony, that should send off warning bells. 
the trial court should have been, hmm, maybe this transcript is important. Defense attorney certainly was going, hmm, maybe this transcript is important. And, and the reason is, it was. That's exactly what happened. The witnesses changed their testimony just like the, the prosecutor suggested might happen uh, or failed to dispute that it might happen. So I, the narrative that the, the defendant is dilatory I think is ridiculous under the facts of this case. Thoroughly unsupported. Uh, and if, if you walk through the facts from beginning to end, you'll see otherwise. The majority keeps pointing to the fact the motion was made on the day of trial. It doesn't point to the fact that the, case set, the state set the case for trial 12 days after the mistrial. During a period, defense attorney was on secured leave, uh, still handing over papers for discovery. Uh, and all of that just before the uh, um, defendant made his motion as well. Uh, um, I ask the court to really consider these facts and, and, and ask itself whether this is a picture of a dilatory trickster trying to delay the trial, which is what the majority seems, wants to say, or whether this is a guy who is working hard for his client. Uh, I'm sorry, I got on a tangent there. Um, but anyway, um, let's see. So that's a critical quote. You know, the state saying, well, you know, it's trial de novo. They should do whatever. Um, there's another quote that I think is also important. I've had it in the brief, and I want to make sure I say it again. Uh, why did the trial court deny defendants' motions? Well, you know, the trial court in the record told us why. The trial court says, the prosecution wanted to try the case, so I told defendant he couldn't have it, speaking about the transcript. He wanted a copy of the transcript, but because the case being a misdemeanor appeal and the prosecution wanting to try it, his motion for a transcript was denied. Does anyone see the Rankin test in that? Did, did the court ever ask, well, is this a necessary for the defense? Is this a necessary part of uh, uh, defense? Is, 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 did the court ever consider defendant's constitutional right here? Like Rankin flat out says it must. Rankin uses the word must. This is a mandatory dictate from uh, uh, Rankin. It doesn't say should, chat, or, or could. It says must. This is what the court must do when an indigent defendant stands up and says, I need a transcript. Didn't do it. Didn't even consider it. And we know that for certain because the trial court tells us it didn't consider it. So what I see here is a state rush, rushing this case to trial, a state aware that its witnesses are going to change their testimony, aware that it has an impeachment problem, rushing this case to, as fast as it can to trial to try to jam the defense's ability to prepare, to prepare against shifting witnesses. So, and when the question, when defendant asks for a transcript, the state's like, no, no, no. We can do this. You don't need the transcript. You can't impeach it. That's essentially what the state is saying. You can't impeach them. They're free to change. And then later on, when the trial attorney comes up, no, 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 should have asked for the transcript. Again, I want to make clear, the only thing that the state is consistent about in this case is that defendant be denied any ability to cross to impeach its witnesses. Counsel, you're well within what normally is rebuttal time. Yes, may I stop now then? I'll save the four minutes I have left, or three is 56. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. I'll hear from the FLA. <clears throat> All right. 
please the court. My name is Michael Henry. I'm an assistant attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice. I wrote the state's brief in this matter and will be arguing on behalf of the state today. Uh, relevant facts are set out in the state's brief, so I'm going to turn right to the substantive issues. Um, wow. Uh, I didn't uh, see that coming. Um, <clears throat> to the state presents three arguments on appeal. I'm going to focus on two of them, which I think are the most uh, readily dispositive and provide the most direct avenue for arriving at the correct result, which is to uphold the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals. Um, those arguments are the first and the third in the state's brief, uh, or well, I was planning on to be the first and third in the state's brief, which is that the trial court's ruling doesn't implicate defendants' equal protection rights at all. That's on pages 25 through 29 of the state's brief. And that even if it did run afoul of defense equal protection rights, any error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, <clears throat> while we're doing that, I want to make sure to respond to some of the defendants' arguments as well as questions from your honors. Um, one thing that uh, jumps out at me right away and that relates to the state's argument on whether this is an equal protection case is that the defendant's argument is totally different here than we've had so far in, in this. It, it's sort of a return to what was argued at the trial court. Um, the Court of Appeals defense argument was a Brit Rankin equal protection issue um, through and through. That is the argument that the dissent adopted, which the defendant uh, argues uh, heavily in favor of. Um, and really that didn't appear um, at all in, in or until the final minute anyway of defendant's case here. I think that's uh, notable, uh, largely because it simply doesn't apply, because this isn't an equal protection case, uh, insofar as the defendant's uh, access to a transcript had nothing to do with his wealth or poverty, uh, but had to do with the trial court's uh, in, uh, interest in moving the case along. Um, I want to address that at the outset. Another thing I want to address at the outset that defendant jumped on early on was that the state's uh, uh, suggesting a dispute as opposed to the first element of Britain Rankin. That's not something the state disputes, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why um, we would argue about that. Um, <clears throat> insofar as illustrating what indigency had to do with this case, I think if we make two changes to the record, uh, we can best illustrate this with an example. Um, and, and, and those two changes are simple. If we swap out Mr. Gaddis for a wealthy tech tycoon billionaire, and imagine his appointed counsel are both partners at White Shoe Law Firms. Otherwise, keep everything absolutely the same. The timing of the trials, the contents of the defendant's motions, the trial court's findings and rulings, and so on. Would that change the applicable analysis? The state's answer is that it, it would, would not. And that is because defendant's well, wealth, I mean, to, poverty. To, to, to be fair, though, if you have a defendant that satisfies the characteristics that you just described, that defendant would not be indigent and would not, therefore, could simply call up and order a transcript from the court reporter and never need to file a motion. Absolutely. And that, so that's so why, why, why is this aspect of your argument particularly, I mean, t tell me why you think it, it, it ought to you know, find it helpful, because I'm having a little trouble with that. <laughs> the, so what that does is it carves off this idea of Britain Rankin. So the, the, because Britain Rankin is something that arises to support it, the whole point of Brit and Rankin is to provide solvent defendants, or provide injured defendants rather, right. with the kind of tools that solvent defendants would have available. The point in this case is that even a solvent defendant would not have this transcript available. 
And that is why Britton-Rankin, when, when the Britton-Rankin analysis is applied. I'm just, I'm just talking, I mean, I hate to, I hate no, to please. get you off ask, track, no, but I mean, I'm having trouble seeing why a solvent defendant would even ever be in this position because there'd be no need for the, need for the defendant to uh, ask for funds to pay for right. a transcript. Right. And you yes. just say, client, write me a check. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that, that really hones in on it. This is not, and, that, and I think that's part of the sticky element of this case. I do agree with John that this case seems like it ought to be simple. And there's a few wrinkles that make it um, stickier. And, and that really is what's sticky. This is not, this is a combined motion right. for a motion for a transcript and for a continuance. There was a mistrial. The state, the defendant makes much to do about this for nefariousness, but the state recalendered the, the, the after the mistrial, recalendered the case for a month later, which is not unusual. Uh, the defendant wanted a transcript, and so a week before trial, moved for a copy of the transcript. But the transcript was not ready and would not have been ready. And it certainly was ready a day before trial, or the day of trial when it got, when the defendant renewed his motion for a continuance. So the operative fact here is whether or not the trial court erred by granting a continuance, or denying the defendant's motion for a continuance. Even if defendant had been a wealthy tycoon uh, and, and decided the week before trial that he wanted a transcript, he could have written that check, but the transcript wouldn't have been there in time for trial. So the operative issue is whether or not and I hesitate to ask this but how do we know that I mean my experience has been if court reporters can if uh, paid certain rates generate things fairly quickly they may be able to but the even when defendant came through the on the morning of trial and sought the transcript he acknowledges in the record that it's not available and he asked for a continuance specifically to allow the time to get it and that, that really is the point. We have to disentangle this case, the, the, the two motions that are going on at the same time. But, but here's the, the, the premise that I can't, I want to explore a little bit further along the same lines. It, um, the notion that, 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 that there, the fact that the transcript was not available is unconnected to the fact that the defendant was indigent and had to get a court order to get one. I mean, if, if he was, as you've described, he could have daily transcripts delivered the evening of the trial. I mean, he, so I don't, as my colleague said, how do we know that um, there wouldn't have been a transcript available if he'd had the resources to fund production I, of it? I think, I think that's a large assumption. I, I, think, I think as a general proposition, we wouldn't have a defendant who would, and, there, and there's nothing in the record suggests that the defendant wanted daily transcripts or would have sought daily transcripts. The only reason the transcript came up at all is because we had a mistrial. And then when the case got reassigned to new counsel, new counsel said, well, I want that transcript. The problem was new counsel didn't say that until the, we were a week out from trial, at which point that transcript was not prepared. And so he needed a continuance to obtain that transcript. Well, and I guess my point is, with sufficient resources, it could have been made available, even just a week before trial. If sure, if if that I'll, I will I will concede. Sure, if a defendant got came in and said, "I want I'm getting tried, and I want to order a copy of the transcript every single day on a daily basis," then he would have the copy of the transcript. I just don't think that's we can fairly infer that that would have been what occurred. We we had a defendant who went to trial. It was a relatively small trial. Even with Mr. Ezra on the second trial, was only, he was only the seventh witness. There was only six witnesses total. Uh, the defendant would have gone to trial and then 
ordered a transcript for his appeal or whatever he would normally do, as we have here. But when the defendant asked for a transcript, the first time a defendant sought a transcript on the record, it was simply not ready, and we were a week out from trial. And that's the issue that we have. And I think that actually brings me to another point that I, I, I do think we have to tweeze out and, and make sure we understand. <clears throat> defendant mentions this in his, I'm turning from the wrong direction here, um, in his brief, and, uh, and, and it, it bleeds into the analysis here. The standard of review is not de novo. We have a, 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 a motion for a continue is addressed to the sound discretion of the trial court. It's not even subject to review, absent a gross abuse of discretion. It is quintessentially an inherent authority of the trial court sort of thing. When the motion raises a constitutional issue, like the defendant here when he said due process out at, 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 at the trial court level, it becomes a question of law that's fully reviewable on appeal by examination of the particular circumstances presented in the record. That does not make the entire granting of a motion to continue a de no, subject to de novo review, where this court then gets to stand in the shoes of the trial court and say, well, I, I would have granted a, a continuance at this point, so it's de novo, so we're on our way. And I'm going to reverse it and order a new trial. It means that the constitutional issue is, review, is fully reviewable. Depending on the outcome of that review, then the harmlessness analysis is going to fork. Right? If, there's no, if, the, if the court does that review and finds no constitutional issue, then we're, we still, at motion to continue, standard, uh, the, 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 the typical uh, standard of review, the defendant has to establish prejudice. If, on the other hand, the court fully reviews that constitutional issue and finds there was a constitutional violation, then we move on to the harmlessness beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So there's a fork there. And that's the way that standard of review integrates itself. You could see that, in particular, from this court in the Cook case, 2008, cited in the state's brief, similar in Gardner, Williams, 2002, Gardner's 1988. Uh, it talks about that idea of a motion to continue raising a constitutional issue and how we do the harmlessness analysis afterward. Are you saying that we then must disengage the motion to continue <coughs> from the motion for the transcript insofar as the two can be bifurcated? They're, they are, they are uh, how am I going to say that? They are integrated but not blended, I guess. I'm not sure. The, the, the idea being that a motion to continue is a quintessentially discretionary decision by the trial court. That's the standard of review we apply here. It's usually not even subject to review, uh, uh, absent a gross abuse of discretion. When it raises a constitutional issue, that particular slice of the motion to continue becomes fully reviewable. This court can go into the record and look and, at, at that and see if it, if it tweezes out a constitutional violation. Depending on the result of that analysis, now we're back into the standard of review for a motion to continue, where typically where there has to be prejudice. So after the result of that analysis tells you how you do the prejudice analysis. So it's this sort of interlocked standard of review, if that makes sense. But we do, they are attenuated. They are not, which is what defendant's argument seems to imply, and I will admit certainly feels good on this record, is this idea that, well, I raised a constitutional issue, therefore, it is a de novo standard overview. Well, as, but as but if, you look, if you look at, and I'm just looking at State versus Taylor, but this is fairly boilerplate language, 
Ordinarily, a motion to continue is addressed to the discretion of the trial court in absent a great a gross abuse of that discretion. The trial court's ruling is not subject to review, period, citing right. State versus Searles. When a motion to continue raises a constitutional issue, the trial court's ruling is fully reviewable on appeal. Isn't the ruling whether to grant or deny the motion for can you cite can you cite me anything that makes parses this out like you're sure. saying did yes, you? Sure. What it, I, that's I, certainly not the way the cases have I've read them. Right. If, if your honor looks at Cook, for example, um, that would be a great one. Um, <clears throat> which one? State v. Cook. And what's I the cite for that? Cite for that. If you'll just indulge me a moment here. And if we think about it, well, let me I'll get you the cite first, then I will comment. 362 NC 285. If we think about it, it the law has to be. I, I will admit, a number of the cases get kind of cavalier about this because there is a boilerplate feel to this motion to review, motion to continue uh, uh, analysis. Um, but it can't be the law, or it certainly shouldn't be the law that we have a motion to continue. If, I, if, if the defense, if, if a party makes a motion to continue because they want to make sure they know, get to see the new Batman movie or something, and so they need to, need to get out, but it doesn't raise any kind of constitutional issue. Um, that is quintessentially discretionary determination by the trial court, not even subject to review. It can't be the law that when the trial, when, if the defendant just says, well, I have a due process right to go out and see a movie tonight or something like that, that all of a sudden, this court stands in the shoes of the trial court on a ruling on something like a motion to continue. Rather, it is the constitutional claim that becomes fully reviewable on appeal. And then depending on the outcome of that constitutional analysis, we still need to put that back in the motion to continue rubric because that is ultimately what we're reviewing. And that is ultimately, again, what this case is about. This is not a case about, I was going to say Britton Rankin, which was the defendant's primary arguments, but he's backed off of that on uh, at oral argument. But the, the, this is not a case about an equal protection denial. This is a case about whether the defendant was entitled to a motion to continue and whether the defendant and whether the trial court abused its discretion by not doing so. But to use the terms that you used with me earlier since sure. you chose the terms. Please. So therefore yeah. I know Hold me that to it. Yeah. I can relate them back to you and you can utilize them. Uh, you said that the motion to continue and the motion for a transcript were not so much blended, right. but that they were interlocked. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? The idea being, and you know, I was sort of grabbing terms from the ether to come up with an, the, 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 right, the right terms. The difference is, it, defendant's brief illustrates it. <clears throat> defendant's brief, standard review, page 31. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 32. In its opinion, the Court of Appeals majority applied the wrong standard of review. Specifically, the majority erroneously applied the gross abuse of discretion standard when the appropriate standard was de novo review. It's not de novo. It's, we are not reviewing a motion, the denial of a motion to continue de novo. We're reviewing a constitutional claim, if it was preserved, which the state would argue it's not. The defendant argued due process of trial, equal protection of the Court of Appeals, both the trial court and the majority didn't accept either of the constitutional claims, went with the abuse of discretion, now defense back to due process, but either way, 
overlooking that, whatever constitutional issue the defendant is setting forth, it is not a de novo standard of review. The, whether or not there's a constitutional entitlement is certainly fully reviewable. But then whether or not the trial court abused its discretion in denying or granting that motion to continue becomes the, the rest of it. If it was a constitutional violation to deny that, that continuance, then we have the, the, the prejudice analysis goes to a harmless beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But if it was not a constitutional error, then the, harm, the, the prejudice analysis goes to Does the, your analytical approach then mandate that we would look at the motion to continue, which is classically discretionary, and look at it as being uh, the, uh, the motion that would subsume the, the more prolific issue of a constitutional matter? I think so. And that would be the, the analytically correct way to march forward. And, and to be clear, nothing about this suggests that the defendant would prevent somebody from getting a review of a constitutional issue. I'm simply acknowledging the fact that we have two motions at play here. And one of them is the procedural motion about whether we are going to move forward with the trial or whether or not we're going to delay it for some period of time. The other one is why the defendant wants to delay it for some period of time, which is this transcript entitlement. At trial, the defendant said that was a due process issue. In the Court of Appeals, it was an equal protection issue. Here's here it was a due process issue on the brief, or an equal protection issue on the brief. Now it's back to a due process issue. <coughs> but whatever it is, that's the constitutional issue that happens in the middle. And this court can fully review the constitutional issue, but we're still reviewing the denial of a motion to continue. And if, and that, that becomes the functional test. There is, there's no reason, for example, on this record, if, uh, Rankin's a good example. If we, if we go to this court's uh, uh, case in Rankin, um, the trial court found the motion was untimely and therefore denied the defendant's request, made no findings of fact. This court acknowledged that that finding mooted the need to find, to, to go with any kind of Rankin analysis. It became unnecessary to analyze under Rankin because it was denied as a matter of the trial court's inherent authority to manage its docket. The problem in Rankin, unlike this case, is that that, mo that finding of untimeliness was unsupported by the record because it wasn't untimely, because it wasn't even on the calendar, and it ended up not being, the trial ended up, the retrial ended up not occurring until almost two months down the line, which was after the time the transcript was projected to, uh, projected to be done anyway, which is why the court in Rankin specifically noted that a solvent defendant would have had that benefit. A solvent defendant could have cut the check, as Your Honor said earlier, and, and, and cut the check, gotten that transcript, and <clears throat> it very likely would have been there in time for the retrial. That's not the case in this. In this so, so if uh, we can turn to the, your analysis on whether or not this was harmless error. Yes. And, and um, I'm wondering how you reconcile the argument you make in your brief about, you know, he put the attorney on and he got to testify, so it was really harmless. And the actual cross-examination <coughs> that the state made of that attorney at the trial, where he, he asked him, and I think I'm counting seven or eight times, you don't really, he's asking him about his testimony, the attorney's testimony about the case that he heard in July um, and his uh, impeachment of the witness who had 
um, changed his testimony. And he says, you can't say word for word what a witness said in the previous trial. You, you still can't say word for word exactly, I'm skipping the answers. You still can't say word for word exactly what those were. And you haven't seen a transcript of the previous trial. Are you relying on your memory of that and your notes and everything? Those notes aren't actual trial transcripts in this case. At least seven or eight times he's saying you don't have a transcript. Yeah. So what you're saying isn't reliable. So how, doesn't that show that this was a, um, significant matter for that jury to hear that this transcript wasn't available? I think, the, I think that starts to blend together what I would keep as the, the second argument in the state's brief versus the third. In other words, I think we can talk about and whether or not this approach, the, the approach the defendant elected, the sort of the, uh, the, the game day decision the defendant elected to, to, to do in terms of, to replace the fact that he didn't get a transcript, whether or not that was a substantially equivalent alternative and we can argue about that with the, especially with the, the ports that your honor points out. So, well, no, that's not equivalent because the, the prosecutor cross-examined and so on. But that's actually a separate question from harmlessness. Har the reason that any error with respect to this transcript is harmless is because there's overwhelming evidence of guilt. Uh, and, and regardless of what cross-examination showed of, of uh, attorney Ezra. You know, the, the defendant is literally on video, and I, 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 the, in the appendix of the state's brief, there's a, a letter that I sent to the clerk of Union County to, to, to send a copy of the video to the court here, and I, I hope your honors received it, and I hope your honors watch it. Uh, the defendant literally admitted to driving the car, uh, and the only explanation for that before the jury was he was being silly, and then in the Court of Appeals, it was, well, that's just sarcasm, but we have a drunken defendant, and I just, just watched the video. <laughs> the, 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 the Deputy Murray is discussing this with the defendant there at the scene, and he admits that he's driving it, that it's his truck and that he was driving. On top of that, we have, as Your Honor pointed out, uh, Justice Irvin pointed out in the, in the, in the last in a presentation of the defendant's argument, we have the, Mr. Daniels' testimony is unimpeached. Uh, most of Mr. Porcello's testimony is unimpeached. I mean, even if we set aside the, the video altogether, which again, defendant just admits to, to doing the only thing that is really of any dispute, in this case, which is that he was the driver. Uh, even aside from that, I mean, Mr. Porcello, uh, unimpeached, undisputed testimony. Mr. Porcello observed the truck while on the road when it wrecked. He never lost sight of the truck while flagging down Mr. Daniel. Mr. Daniel saw the defendant in the driver's seat as he parked. He again saw the defendant in the driver's seat on the accelerator trying to get unstuck when he approached with a flashlight. Mr. Daniel and Mr. Porcello both saw the defendant exit the truck. Defendant fled the scene. I mean, there really, there is no basis to doubt that, that, that this defendant is in fact culpable and guilty of these crimes. The only thing, and again I mentioned earlier this idea that this case really seems kind of simple, and then it, you have a few of these sticky wickets that come in there and just feel like they, they cause like a hitch in the reasoning, is this idea of a mistrial. I don't think we can infer anything from the mistrial. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 from the beginning, all we know on the record is that the jury deadlocked 11 to 1 from the beginning of deliberations and we saw no progress thereafter. That to me sounds like a problem with a particular juror. Uh, and I think getting to point about a reasonable juror, what a reasonable jury do. I think if we review the evidence in this case, there, there, there is no chance that a transcript could have possibly made any difference, even if it showed exactly what Mr. Ezza said it said. So whether Mr. Ezza's testimony by virtue of cross-examination failed to become a substantially equivalent alternative to a transcript under the Brit analysis, which doesn't apply anyway because this isn't in, it wasn't denied as a result of his indigency, 
it doesn't matter because we have overwhelming <laughs> evidence of guilt. Which does make me want to touch on, there, there's some suggestions of impropriety or fairly heavy-handed suggestions of impropriety coming from defendant um, in this argument. And I think that is just wholly baseless. Uh, first of all, the prosecutor was a, a female, not, not a male. But they, they, Porcello and Daniel both testify that they met with the prosecutor once before the mistrial. That's it. There, there, there's no suggestion that the prosecutor, the idea that the prosecutor rushed this case onto trial, this case was 17 months old for a misdemeanor at the time it came to trial for the first go-round. The, the, the prior defendant already had all the discovery. The discovery that we're talking about is discovery that is unchanged and that was, it, that was there at the first trial, and it's an open file case. There is no right to discovery because it's a misdemeanor appeal, but as the defendant, as the prosecutor mentioned directly on the record, it was, has at all times been available to the defendant in this case. The defendant's motions to continue talk about other issues that aren't being brought forward here on appeal, uh, aerial photographs and uh, who the owner of the truck is on a DMV report and things like that, that are just simply not being brought here, which I suspect is actually more of the motion, the, the, the reasoning for the motion uh, uh, for the transcript and, that, and the motion to continue, rather. Um, and those, those issues were handled by the trial court at the hearing. But we, we can't presume, and we certainly don't, want to write a judicial opinion that uh, I would think that presumes that a prosecutor, a, a, a state, an officer of the court was deliberately attempting or planning on meeting with witnesses to have them craft some story uh, uh, and then uh, to come and testify to this and was trying to avoid cross-examination and, and was hiding the transcript and, and, and so on. That, that is a substantial accusation that there's just no evidence in the record. Um, all right. Let me make sure I uh, get through some of this. Um, another thing uh, that is, is worth talking about is this idea of, um, well, we need the transcript. We're running low on time. We need this transcript to assess harmlessness. Um, and the defendant mentioned that it was, we had the transcript in McKeithy, and that's true. We had it in McNeil, too. Um, uh, that it certainly helps. A lot of times these cases come up where we have something, for example, like a, like a suppression hearing or something that was part of the overall trial. The defendant wants a transcript in the middle or at the beginning of trial of the suppression hearing that just happened, and you know, the trial court denies it. And then on appeal, of course, the whole transcript comes up to the court. So the, the, the court has the transcript. However, um, this court, for example, uh, uh, found harmlessness in Matthews in 1978. There's no transcript in Matthews. Bueno, Fifth Circuit, Gillard, Southern District of North Carolina, uh, New York, uh, no transcript in assessing harmlessness. And that's not a surprise because that is generally not required. We often don't have, we assess harmlessness, whether harmlessness beyond a reasonable doubt or whether the defendant has simply failed to show prejudice. Either way, we routinely assess harmlessness when we don't have the alternative reality existing in the record. You know, if we had a, a, a confession that was erroneously admitted under Miranda, we might look and see overwhelming evidence and conclude that it was harmless or harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't actually need to have the trial again to assess whether it was harmless or not. Um, and so not only do we have cases that, that find harmlessness without a transcript, uh, and that generally isn't required even with constitutional issues, it also just shouldn't be necessary. I mean, it would be a wholly new requirement under the Britt-Rankin line of cases, and it would effectively moot them all together by requiring trial courts to go ahead and make transcripts anyway 
merely because a defendant requested it just so we could have it on appeal which is kind of the whole point and we have a number of cases the court of appeals in particular had a run of them back in the 70s Carter Clark orange where transcripts or requests for transcripts are denied because the request comes on too late it comes a week before trial the day of trial something like that and that again becomes something that is quintessentially a trial court property of the trial court a the ability to manage its own docket and we will assess assess things like harmlessness without actually having a transcript certainly nice to have but it's not something that is required take my last moment here one thing I do want to address especially because defendant did talk about as shifted back to a due process analysis which was the original one before the trial court and then it was equal protection all through the rest and now it's back to due process either way when we get to an indigency issue the issue is whether or not the constitutional violation arose because of the indigency that is simply not the case here here the trial courts findings all show it was just gonna have gone through a remarkable amount of counsel in that period of time for a relatively modest charge and the trial court wanted to move forward which does bring me the other comment in the record I think where the defendant was saying that the trial court says why he denied the transcript the trial court denied the the request for the transfer continuance for the reasons that it found the con the comment later as I read the record and encourage the court to do the same was related to sort of the trial courts exasperation with the with the with the state's angle that you know a transcript should have been ordered which I think the state didn't come out looking terribly good on that's my argument thank you very much rebuttal I'm gonna speak quickly I apologize first I'd like to address the standard of review the standard of review is is fully reviewable the state of the case is fully reviewable on appeal means de novo review I don't think there's a credible argument here that this is not de novo review you can cut and paste and cut things out into little bits and pieces but the law is pretty clear when you combine these motions like this and a constitutional right is implicated the whole thing is reviewed de novo by the court I don't think there's any credible legal basis to claim otherwise and I stand by the law in the briefs on that the state is is consistently telling y'all that I raised an equal protection claim in this case that's just simply not true and I'm gonna read this fast justices the trial courts denial of defendants to motions for production of the transcript one motion for a continuance under the facts of this case is exactly the kind of quote significant diminute demutation of the right of cross-examination the SCOTUS is addressing in chambers a due process case I cite in my brief as such the due process clause of the 14th amendment requires this court to closely examine the state's competing interest in rushing this case to trial while opposing production of the transcript of defendants requested transcript that's what chambers that's what chambers says when you get a situation like this where the state is an action by the state is in 
potentially impugning on a defendant's due process rights, you look at the action by the state and you compare it to the due process right in de novo review. Uh, that's exactly what defendants ask this court to do. Engage in the due process analysis set forth in chambers to weigh the state's need for speed against the defendant's right to present an effective defense, using a very typical tool for cross-examination impeachment, a transcript. Now, as the state correctly points out, this weighing of competing interests here involves a lot of cases addressing the, 14th Amendment, uh, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's because the issue of transcript production has historically been raised in the equal protection context. Where the state is wrong, however, is in its assertion that the presence of equal protection principles in the cases cited by defendant and the dissent exclude the use of those cases to make out a chamber's due process claim. I don't say in my brief this is an equal protection claim. I say in my brief, look at these cases. Even though they're talking about equal protection, they still cut right to the due process claim. Uh, take Rankin, for example. While the case has equal protection underpinnings, it nonetheless engages in due process analysis as well. Consider the two-part Rankin test. When a trial court denies an indigent defendant a transcript, it must determine whether the transcript is necessary for preparation of an effective defense. That is a due process test. Is it needed for an effective defense? If not, then there's no due process violation. If it is, and the actions of the trial court denied defendant that transcript, it's a due process violation. Uh, uh, don't get confused by the fact that the history of um, uh, these transcript denial issues is, is largely in the equal protection context. They're essentially the same thing uh, um, when you get down in it. Uh, so I am, the defense, defense, defendant is making an equal protection claim. Not, a, I'm sorry, a due process claim, but I'm using the cases available to me, most of which talk about uh, equal protection because that's the history of the transcript issue. Uh, but this is a due process claim, uh, and that law that I cite supports the due process claim. So um, whether a transcript is necessary for the pre preparation of an effective defense is at the heart of Chambers' due process analysis in this case. If the court answers two ranking questions in the affirmative, as the defense did, you have both an equal protection and a due process violation under the facts of this case. Uh, Thank you. That is my time. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both.